Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 13th, 2018, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 2,270 of the Survival Podcast. Take off the first two, and you uh, you 270 Winchester fans have an episode tailor-made just for you, even though... We're not really going to talk about guns today. We will a little bit, but not about the 270. Uh, I got a lot of great stuff to talk about today. One thing I am going to do is give you a very brief uh, overview of what went on with uh, what I'm going to call TSPCX, X meaning 10. Uh, this was the long-awaited TSP uh, anniversary party celebrating 10 years of the Survival Podcast. Um It was amazing. I'll just save any further thought on it for when I get there, and I'll tell you probably won't be the last to hear about it, but it's probably about as much as I can do today. Uh, anyway, there's a big, long list of people that need to be thanked, and I need to figure out how to do that in a befitting way. Today I'm just going to kind of give you an overview of what went on, and if you want to see a, one of the more interesting pictures of Jack Spearco you will ever see, and That would be one of the very few times in the world I speak about myself in the third person. Uh, but if you want to see uh, one of the most unique or interesting or foolish or I don't know pictures of me, take a look at today's episode show notes. And I'll, I'll, I'm not going to tell you nothing about that today. You're going to have to go there and find out for yourself. And I'm not even sure I'll re uh, reveal the context, at least not on purpose when I get to that section. I also have a simple follow-up from um, a, a question I answered a couple weeks ago, and it shows why I do the Survival Podcast. And I thought as simple as it was, it would be fitting uh, to kind of meld into the 10-year uh, anniversary segment. Um, then getting serious, we have the Russian response to sanctions that we're imposing And I'm going to talk about the lesson it really tells. And it's not about this particular thing. It's about sanctions in general and how they work and how countries play the, the dangerous game of escalation and how it depends on what the, who, the, who the people are doing the escalating depends on how dangerous it is and how you can tell when danger has uh, mitigated itself to just a little bit of uh, the monkey dance, I guess is what you call it, when people are uh, you know, going to throw down on the playground when they're in high school. Uh, then the Business Insider tells us what we all knew. At least all of us who listen to this show knew. Food expiration dates are a scam. I put a scam in the show notes, but I'm going to say it this way. Food expiration dates are bullshit. And I'm going to tell you why it's important to know what's in this article, even if you were going to throw everything away by the date, because the date might be wrong the other way. Uh, there's a lot of other food that this applies to. Then what is 5G? <clears throat> 5G obviously is... Is bigger than 3G, so it must be better. Um, 5G is a new technology, and like all new technologies, it has its share of hype, but it really ain't hype. Um, 5G is going to change the world, and as this article says, no one's talking about it. Uh, I think that <clears throat> that statement is true to a degree. It's true to a degree. No one outside of the space that this stuff is really going to be used Uh, that isn't either an industry insider, an engineer, a developer, a technician, or someone that sells crap into the organizations talking about it. Those guys are talking about nothing but it. But yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why, uh, why we should be at least paying attention to it and what it's really going to mean. 
Uh, next, I have a question from someone saying, my neighbor's dog is killing my chickens. Help me, and I'll do what I can to help with that. And there's some unique circumstances around this particular instance of this going on, but I think the general answer is always the same. Next, I have a question. That, it's not phrased this way, but the way I put it for a bullet point in the show notes is, how do you develop the eyes of entrepreneurship? Maybe that's a new phrase that I have created Or maybe someone else has said it before, I don't know. But the eyes of entrepreneurship. And when I get to the actual question, I think you'll see why I chose that terminology. And I'll talk about that a bit. Then I have just from the, the blog comments, when I do some follow-up, somebody asked me about killing poison ivy. And I, I just got a way to kill poison ivy that I think is genius. I'll tell you a story about my dad killing a tree in a not-so-good way that backs up the stuff like this works, though. Uh, then I have thoughts on a fishing class for kids, a.k.a., as I would call it, herding cats. And my first thought was, oh, God, no. It's hard enough to teach one or two kids to fish. But I started thinking about this and how important it is to involve kids in the outdoors. And how could you do it? with it? It's still going to be herding cats, but let's say a nice, calm little cats with you know trimmed or filed nails that generally kind of stay put versus, like, psychotic feral cats that try to kill you when you say kitty to them. But how we can do that. And I think maybe we can, and maybe we can get some ideas, and maybe this actually could be formalized into a program that would allow people to do it, because I think if it's done the right way, it could be highly successful. That's a pretty good variety that we have coming back after a party where, well, let's just say I slept really hard last night. I had... I have folks visiting since Thursday last week. There hadn't been a day until last night that I got to bed before 2 a.m. And there was a couple of days that were later. Those that have been to workshops know that is generally what goes on. And uh, we had a lot of fun, but my, I was tired. I feel pretty good today in spite of the fact that, well, some not-so-great stuff's going on right now. I'll, I'll tell you all about that when I, when I lead into today's show. But before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Safecastle Royal. I refer to them as the original survival podcast sponsor. And that's because more than nine years ago, Vic Rontalo, founder of Safecastle, reached out and said, we want to sponsor the show. It was so long ago that I went, yeah, um, see, I don't really have that many people listening to me yet. And I, I'd find a, kind of feel like a jerk taking your money because I can't in any way think that I'm going to make enough money for you to... Uh, To pay it back, so let's put that on hold, Vic, and uh, let's let me give me another six months to work on this, and and I'll see what I can do. And I guarantee you, when I do take sponsors, you'll be the first person that I get in touch with. I did, and he did, and that was over nine years ago that we made that that final agreement and started running with it. And I brought Safe Castle on as the first sponsor, and they're still here, still taking care of you, still delivering the best stuff and preps that you'll ever find. It's kind of like a Walmart of the world of prepping. Practical to tactical guns and gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at Safe Castle Royal. Check them out. And, yes, they do offer a discount program for members of the MSB. If you're not a member of my support brigade, you get to buy it for $29 a year. If you are a member of my support brigade, you get one for life. You get a lifetime membership that you can't even buy a lifetime membership to on everything they sell. So definitely take advantage of that one. It's one of the best values we have for you out of the MSB. Next up, we have Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Now, I know it's not really a big leap 
that you would get Berkey, Berkey water filtration systems and accessories and support for your Berkey products from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. But I'm going to tell you what, you should be using the Berkey Guy for everything Berkey because because he's the freaking Berkey Guy, that's why. That's why you should be, I mean, seriously, think about it. Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, why would you go anywhere else? In all seriousness, this man cares about his customers as much or more than any other entrepreneur that I know. He will not let customer service uh, questions go unanswered. He is the epitome of taking care of the customer. And because he's one of the largest dealers of Berkey in the world, and I think he might be the largest dealer in the United States, he has great pricing that he can pass on to you. He always takes care of you. You can learn more at his website, which is, you'd think it would be theberkeyguy.com, but it's not. It's directive21.com. I said he was good at Berkey. I said he was good at taking care of his I didn't say he was good at marketing and branding. So directive21.com, and he does offer discounts for MSP members, not just on Berkey items, but the other great stuff for your prepping needs. That you'll find where? The Berkey, no, directive21.com. At least it's not directive1234.com. So before we go ahead and uh, get into today's stuff, let's uh, take a look at this year, or actually this day in history, August 13th. And uh, a lot of stuff happened this day. Uh, what I'm going to recover is that Berlin was divided. It began its actual division on this day, the initial construction of what would become the Berlin Wall. Some other things that happened, though, Fidel Castro was born on this day in 1926. The uh, same day, shared a birthday with a guy that I think did a lot better for society with some really evil-seeming things, but his was fictitious. Alfred Hitchcock was born this day in 1899. You'll go way back in 1521, the Aztec capital fell to Cortez. And coming up a much closer period of time, back to just 1995, Yankee legend and one of the greatest baseball players of all time, Mickey Mantle, died on August 13th, 1995. And those of us that are 80s and 70s kids... One of the greatest movies of all times was released on August 13th in 1982, known as Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But let's look at the Berlin being divided. It's probably the biggest story from this day in history. Shortly after midnight on this day in 1961, East German soldiers began laying down barbed wire and bricks as a barrier between Soviet-controlled East Berlin and the democratic western section of the city. After World War II, defeated Germany was divided into Soviet, American, British, and French zones of occupation. The city of Berlin, though technically part of the Soviet zone, was also split, with the Soviets taking the eastern part of the city. After a massive Allied airlift in June 1948 foiled a Soviet attempt to blockade West Berlin, the eastern section was drawn even more tightly into the Soviet fold. After the next over the next 12 years, cut off from western counterpart, its western counterpart. Basically reduced to a Soviet satellite, East Germany saw between 2.5 million and 3 million of its citizens head to West Germany in search of a better opportunity. By 1961, some 1,000 East Germans, including many skilled laborers, professionals, intellectuals, were leaving per day. In August, Walter Ulbricht, the communist leader of East Germany, got the go-ahead from Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev to begin sealing off access between East and West Berlin. Soldiers began to work overnight of August 12th through 13th, laying more than 100 miles of barbed wire slightly inside the East Berlin border. The wire was soon replaced by a six-foot-high 
96-mile-long line of concrete blocks complete with guard towers, machine gun posts, and searchlights. East German officers known as Volpuls patrolled the Berlin Wall day and night. Many Berlin residents on that first morning found themselves suddenly cut off from friends or family members in the other half of the city, led by their mayor, Willy Brandt. West Berliners demonstrated against the wall as Brandt criticized Western democracies, particularly the United States, for failing to take a stand against it. President Kennedy had earlier said publicly that the United States could only really help West Berliners and West Germans, and any kind of action on behalf of East Germans would only result in failure. The Berlin Wall was one of the most powerful and iconic symbols of the Cold War. In June 1963, Kennedy gave his famous Ich bin ein Berliner, I am a Berliner speech in front of the wall, celebrating the city as a symbol of freedom and democracy and its resistance to tyranny and oppression. The height of the wall was raised to 10 feet in 1970 in an effort to stop escape attempts, which at the time were almost daily. From 61 to 89, a total of 5,000 East Germans escaped. Many more tried and failed. High-profile shootings of some would-be defectors only intensified the Western world's hatred of the wall. Finally, in the late 1980s, East Germany, fueled by the decline of the Soviet Union, began to implement a number of liberal reforms. On November 9, 1989, masses of East and West Germans alike gathered at the Berlin Wall and began to climb over and dismantle it. As this symbol of the Cold War repression was destroyed, East and West Germany became one nation again, signing a formal treaty of unification on October 3rd, 1990. I think a lot of people alive today, you can almost divide us as generations into those that knew the maps of the world differently than they're drawn today. And, and, and the fact that there is no longer an East and West Germany, and then a little island inside East Germany that's East and West Berlin is one of the biggest things that occurred. The lack of something called the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic and places like Lithuania and the Ukraine and Georgia being independent sovereign nations rather than uh, basically states within the Soviet Union, that's, that's a big deal too. But this one thing, more than anything else, symbolized the end of the Cold War. And now we find ourselves possibly at a point where it seems like we want to re-enter it, but yet it seems like we won't. That's what it feels like to me, that we won't. That there's still enough of us around that remember what this was like. That we don't want to go back to it. But I worry, in another generation, what will become of it. I'll save my comments on it further because it actually fits well with the segment that we'll be covering today. With that, let's, uh, let's talk real quick. I don't want to take too long on this. Uh, but I want to say a little bit about the 10th anniversary party. So... When I decided to put this together, it was it was really Dorothy who, who made it happen. She was like, "You you've got to do this. There's no there's no maybe about it. This is a big deal." And, and you know, as usual, when uh, when my wife tells me I should be doing something, she's right. Uh, I'm really happy that we did it. It was a, a pretty amazing experience. It was really humbling too to have people. You know, come up to you and say, yeah, we just drove in today from Chicago. Or I flew in from Los Angeles and, and telling people, you, you, you came here from Los Angeles for a three hour party. And they're like, yeah, of course. Um, it, it tells you you're impacting lives when people will do that. That's, uh, that, that, that's amazing to me. And I heard a lot of really great stories from people. If you were there, I hope I spent enough time talking to you. I, You know, you're trying to talk to 60, 70 people in three hours. It's rough. And then we uh, we sauntered over to a place called the Bird Cafe, and 
I think we changed their uh, probably their revenue for the evening. Uh, <laughs> we uh, we slammed a bunch of stuff, not just booze either. The place has some amazing food. We went through three plates of uh, beef cheeks. Those were fantastic. Uh, I think we went through at least five plates of chicken skin chips. And if you haven't ever had that, you need to. That's that's paleolicious right there, boys and girls. Um, I received a lot of really cool gifts. Um, one certain uh, individual who has uh, done a lot for the show over the years, Mr. Pugliano, gifted me with a, a beautiful CZ pistol uh, prior to the event. Just said, you know, I really don't like the color of this thing, so why don't you just have it? And I know what that really means, Sean, and thank you. Uh, my wife and JR and, and David and, and some other folks got together, and uh, I'm a huge fan of a 357 Magnum, and they got me a Ruger Red Hawk. Uh, 357 Magnum custom engraved with uh, TSP 10 years and the Val logo on the top and uh, a trigger job that's just amazing. Apparently David's buddy Toby uh, went back to the place doing it twice and said finally on a third time, let me tell you how you're supposed to be doing this, which doesn't surprise me. That's Toby. And, and JR went out of his way to make sure he got here for this, uh, to bring the elk, uh, elk horn grips. That was, you know, amazing. Uh, my buddy Brian Black and Kelly Black from ITS Tactical brought me a bottle of my favorite stuff ever, Johnny Walker Blue. Um, the expert council got together and gave me this amazing shadow box. says, thank you for allowing us to tell our story. And, of course, I've told the story of Johnny Walker Blue many times. They had a little bottle of Johnny Walker Blue in there, and they had gotten me a four-pack of the different little mini bottles of Johnny Walker. Um, and then a bunch of you guys, many of you I'm sure weren't even able to come, I got together in something called the Bacon Brigade uh, in the TSP forum on, on, on Facebook and kind of partnered up together and, and gifted me with an awesome uh, Model 1894 Marlin .357 Magnum uh, lever gun, which is a gun I've lamented many times on the air that I had one in my hands uh, at a hardware store in Pennsylvania back when I was looking for a deer rifle for my son, and I didn't buy it. And uh, apparently people listen, and they wanted to all chat on Facebook and social media, me, we, and other places to uh, to get together and do this for me. And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, that's hard to do without, you know, the person you're doing it for seeing it. So they created this thing called the Bacon Brigade, and I was like, I'll join the Bacon Brigade. And they didn't approve my membership, and now I know why. And there's a pretty cool video I'll See if I can find a way to link to it. I think it's only in the TSP forum, though, of uh, me yelling at Mark Zuckerberg, holding that gun in my hand, saying, Zuckerberg, this is what your social media has done, or something like that. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out people right now that were there and, and, and handed me something and don't think that, I mean, I just, I'm still kind of overwhelmed and I'm tired. Uh, I, I had, like I said, I haven't had much sleep in, in the past few days and I need to sit down and compose thank yous to everyone properly. But I just wanted to kind of come out today and tell you guys how awesome it was. And, uh, you know, if you want to be around some awesome people, uh, start planning now and try to be at the workshop this fall. I'm going to try to squeeze in a few extra uh, people into the headcount this year. Um, over the years, getting people off the Internet and into the homestead has, has drastically changed the way this thing works. I, you know, I wondered why years ago, when we had finally gotten to Arkansas and I had a house payment that was less than most people's car payment, and you know why why the universe would conspire to uh, to make it where we needed to come back to Dallas Fort Worth area, and when we got this property and I realized what I could do with it, and I don't mean from a permaculture standpoint, I mean from a 
bringing people together standpoint, I understood. And uh, so just to all of you that were part of any part of that, thank you so much. And, and, and I really appreciate y'all. And, and y'all don't know how, how, how well timed this ended up. So we've been in a drought since May the 30th. And I just put a little video about a minute and a half long on Facebook this morning. Um, we've had four inches of rain over five days. And I think what happened is, you know, when we have a workshop, it rains. So this many people TSP from TSP coming here uh, and all converging in one location tricked the universe, and it believed that there was a, a TSP workshop going on. So we got rain, which is saving my trees. Uh, and then the other thing that happened this morning is my water heater kapusta broke. And so I'm stuck with a $1,500 bill for new water heater installation, all that stuff. I don't have time to jack with it myself. I've never not been mad. I've never not been mad when like something expensive broke and I had no choice but to fix it. Bro, I ain't mad. I'm in a great mood between the rain and this and everything and seeing all this stuff come together. You know, it's it, it worked out. It's okay. I'm fine with it. It's just part of being a homeowner. So thank you to all of you. There go the dogs going nuts. If you hear any loud noise in the background today, I apologize. They're they're actually installing that thing right now. And it's just one it's like the room attached to my room is the bathroom that it's in. So kind of just melding right in with this and, and, and what a decade of this show has really been all about. I sent a quick little thank you email from Paula who wrote in, I guess about a week and a half ago or called in a week and a half ago. I don't really remember if it was a call or a letter, but it was asking about uh, duck and chicken breeds for a family with an autistic child. And they had to, had to take care of some turkeys for a while. And they said it really helped this young person come out of their shell a bit. And they were looking for ducks and chickens that would be appropriate for them and also would be quiet. And I kind of steered them away from ducks, even though I love my ducks, toward bantam chickens and, and gave them some duck ideas as well. And some other chickens that maybe weren't as quiet as bantams but would probably work. And this is what Paula had to say. Thanks for discussing family-friendly poultry. The mom and her son listened to your reply. She took her three sons to a nearby 4-H fair where they all met some of the breeds you mentioned. Your information will have a wonderful outcome for this boy, Paula. I, and I don't have it in front of me, but somebody posted a comment on that episode that said that they Googled chickens and autism. And there's, there's a whole thing that is chickens and autism. There's whole communities of people discussing this and that this is a thing. That, that it's, it's, it, there's something about chickens, especially nice, peaceful, quiet you know, friendly chickens, which exist if you create them, because uh, it's all about how they're raised. Uh, you know, some chickens you don't want to be that friendly with. You want them staying out in the pasture. But if you want a chicken to act like a cockatoo and sit on your shoulder, it's not hard to do. That's a rhyme. Anyway, um, and there's all kinds of information online about it. And what I wanted to kind of bring up is maybe an early criticism and how it, it, it's an invalid criticism of, of what we do here. I remember one time way back, I mean, I'm in the first year, that somebody said something about how awesome they thought the new podcast was that they were listening to. And the response to it was something like, oh, you mean the guy where you can Google everything that he says? And, I mean, to me, if you can't Google what I say and verify it, that means I'm lying or I'm inaccurate. So I wasn't really upset about it or anything. But my real thought was, but do you know to Google it? Do you know what you're looking for? Do you know how to get down to the, the piece? Or did you, were you even aware that it was a thing? It's not so much, when I answer a question, it's not just so much for the person asking the question, because a lot of times that person could get an answer on their own with Google, uh, or the internet in general. However, 
they want my opinion, they want my unique viewpoint into it, but more importantly to me is that through that content generation, that then you know it's a thing. Because, how I mean, I did not know that reaching autistic children with the use of a chicken was a thing. It makes perfect sense. And there's apparently, again, lots of information on it. So then when you do a show and you answer a simple question like this, it's going to impact one individual or one family, that's great. But then knowing that you know thousands of others will hear it and pass that on so that people are even aware that they can go learn more about it, that's why we do TSP. And I, I just thought it was a quick little thing we could do to kind of draw in uh, you know, an actual thing that happened with you know, just the feelings I have coming off of the 10-year anniversary party, which are still pretty dead gone sky high, even though I am still worn out. I think I went to bed at 8 o'clock last night, and I slept till about 8 in the morning. I never sleep till 8. Uh, so sleep 8 to 8 for me, 12 hours. It's unusual. Anyway, let's move on. Let's go to something a little bit, unfortunately, more serious. And I do think it's something we need to look at. So despite all of the stories that, you know, Trump is some kind of a tool uh, for Putin, uh, who just does whatever Putin wants, as ridiculous as that is. And you guys know me, I don't, I don't take sides in the dichotomy. I don't support politicians, period. But I do support the truth in narrative. If we're talking about a politician, no matter what I think of them personally and their actions, if we're going to criticize their actions, then you know we should actually be accurate when we do that. So the Trump administration has been tougher on Russia than, well, you want the truth? last guy that was this tough on, on Russia wasn't tough on Russia. It was tough on the Soviet Union that Russia was a part of. It was Ronald Reagan. And there's new sanctions coming down. And Russia, of course, is going to respond to those sanctions. So let me read this to you from uh, Reuters. Russia will further decrease its holdings of U.S. securities in response to new sanctions against Moscow, but has no plan to shut down U.S. companies in Russia. Finance Minister Anton Silvanov said on state TV on Sunday, RIA News Agency uh, reported. Uh, on Friday, Prime Minister Dmitry Medev said Russia would regard any U.S. move to curb the activities of its bank as a declaration of economic war and would take a retaliatory action. Washington said on Wednesday it would impose fresh sanctions by the end of August after it determined that Moscow had used the nerve agent against a former Russian agent and his daughter in Britain, sending Russia's ruble currency to a two-year low. Speaking on a weekly TV talk show, Solonov said the U.S. sanctions, some of which could restrict purchases of Russian government bond, were unpleasant but not fatal. Quote, we have lowered, the minimum, lowered to the minimum level and will discuss further our investment in the U.S. economy and the, other, the U.S. securities. Solonov said, shedding light on the nature of an unexpected drop in Russians' holdings in U.S. Treasury bonds. Russia has dished holdings of U.S. Treasuries in the past few months as relations between Moscow and Washington have deteriorated. Data showed last month, month Russia will also have more settlement in rubles and other currencies, such as euros, than in dollars, Solonov said. Quote, eventually this will negatively impact U.S. investors, but we are not planning now any limitations on shutting down McDonald's, Solonov said. He referred to calls by some likemakers to shut down prominent U.S. companies in Russia, starting from 2014 when relations with the West soured over Russia's annexation of Crimea and its role in the Ukrainian crisis. Our citizens work in these companies. The companies pay taxes into the budget of our country, Solonov said. While admitting that the U.S. sanctions would boost inflations in Russia as they hurt the ruble, Solonov said there were no plans to ban using the dollar in Russia. 
Quote, of course, the government has no such plans. That would be a step to an impasse. End quote. This is the Russians being more sane than us. But it's not about Russia. It's not about the United States. It's not why I chose to bring this story to you today. I chose to bring it to you so you can understand sometimes how these things go in the world and how watching them can tell you whether you're heading toward war, whether you're heading to real problems, or whether the saber-rattling is just to appease the people that bite at the knees, okay? Appease the knee-biters. What happens is a country does something. Russia whacks one of its ex-spies in London, or at least they're accused of doing so. And it, it looks, to be fair, it looks, again, I'm pro-truth. It looks like they did. It, it's pretty, pretty damning what's there. It seems pretty evident that this happened. I'm not saying it definitely did. I'm saying it looks that way. And then somebody like Trump is in compromising position because of the narrative that Russia influenced the elections. It could be any. It doesn't matter what it is. There's always something like that going on. So now they've done something that demands reaction. And every politician has political enemies. This is another reason I hate politicians, right? Because they have to... Just leave it. I'm not going to have to turn this into an anarchy thing, right? Or even a libertarian thing. But this is just what happens. So now, in the face of not losing your supporters, especially the middle ground people, who are the ones that always are the crowd that sways to one side or another, you have to respond. So you say, well, they did this, we're doing this. Okay, the guy on the other side, in this case Putin, has the same shit going on. The biters of the knees. Appeasing the biters of the knees. You know, you're going to look weak. You have to do something. It's everybody from his actual enemies to his advisors saying, this can't go unanswered. We have to do something. And it, it starts a game of escalation. A very dangerous game of escalation when the two parties involved command armies. And these very things do at times lead to war, and at times they don't lead to war, but they lead to crisis, and at times they lead to proxy wars. If you, if you want to know the truth about World War II, what drew Japan to attack the United States was more this than anything else, this type of thing. I'm not going to do a whole history segment on Japan today and, and pre-World War II, but if you want to look it up for yourself, there were things that the United States was doing clearly involve a violation of the international rules of war as it pertains to claiming to be neutral, like loaning money to one party at one interest rate and apart from other economic reasons, either refusing to or loaning money at much higher rates to another party only because of the war while claiming to be neutral. That would just be one example. So when these things happen, then the other side does something, and then the other side does something, and the other side does something. And it has to get to a point where one side says, I'm going to do something, but it was going to be fairly insignificant. But it's going to sound significant enough that I will appease the knee-biters, and then they'll stop doing their thing, and this escalation will stop. But they want to go last. They want to go last, and they want to float basically a, hey, you know, I got to do, it's like two, it's, see, again, it's back to the mafia family thing. Democrats, Republicans, Russians, Americans, the same shit. Hey, look, you know I got to do something. I did this thing. You know this thing is no big deal. You know this is going to be a, a little blip on the radar. Your knee biters, they might, they might bite a little bit, but it's not going to be a big deal. I don't want to escalate this anymore. Let's, let's stop here. That's what this is. This is a, a very, um, 
low-level thing. There's a you know, any nation might choose to like sell off some of the bonds they're holding in another nation at any time for any reason. This is not an act of war. This is not an act of even defiance. This is just hey, we're dumping some of your bonds. And we're not going to buy anymore for a while. From a fairly insignificant uh, player in the scheme of buying U.S. debt. Now, if China says, hey, we're going to liquidate the shit out of your bonds and not buy anymore, that's a totally different thing because they're in a much higher leverage position. But this is going to have almost no effect on the United States at all. And, they, and Russia knows it, but they still did something in response to the thing we did. So it's floating that kind of that, that un, undisclosed offer, right? That, that under, the, under the covers offer. Hey, look, we, 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 gave it, you gave, we gave you something here. We get to save face, you get to save face, everything's cool, we're going to go on. That doesn't mean everything goes away, but it means this particular line of escalation is done. It's really important in reading markets from a financial standpoint, from a business standpoint, from a global conflict stance. I'm not saying everything's hunky-dory with Russia now. I'm saying this whole particular narrative, it's flatlined. It's flatlined, and then slowly this will go away. The sanctions that were that are being imposed at the end of the month, they come with their own expiration date, and this is why they do that. If they put sanctions in place that don't have an expiration date, then when they remove the sanctions, it's a lot of hoopla. When they expire, it's no big deal. This is all this is all international politics game theory is all that this is. So I just wanted to point that out so that you can start recognizing that pattern when you see it in the future, including when the pattern is one of true escalation. And it also matters, like, see, the U.S. can go in and, like, put massive sanctions on somebody like Iran or North Korea because there's really not shit they can do about it. So in that instance, what you really have is the United States being a bully. Now, you can take all of your uh, hurt feelings about that if you don't like that and put it on the shelf because being a bully isn't always a bad thing. You know, if I see two kids and the one kid's bullying the other kid and I go up to the bully and say, hey, kid, You need to knock this off. You're going to have a grown man put you up in that tree from down here. I'm being a bully. I'm being a bully. I'm using my superior size to say, hey, knock it off. So, But I'm not being a malicious bully. I'm being a bully that doesn't really want to have to act. And I'm not doing it for my gain. I'm doing it for somebody else. So, you can, But this U.S. bullying, using what we call soft power to bully other nations, that's what sanctions generally are. But when the two kids on the playground that are standing each other off and monkey dancing are in many ways equally matched, even if one has certain advantages and the other has different advantages, there's a lot more likely to having a fight. And the bigger they are, the more damage can be done. You know, two little, two little I don't mean to offend any, but two little nerds that can don't barely slap fight, they can fight for hours and nothing's really going to happen. You get two guys that are kind of built and have some, some, some stiffness on their arms and stuff and know how to throw a punch. A very small conflict in time can actually result in somebody or both sides getting hurt really bad. So that's what to pay attention to with this stuff. Next up from John, I have an article that's in Business Insider that I thought was right in the wheelhouse of the survival podcast community from a standpoint of uh, storage of foodstuffs. And the headline is one that, if you listen to this show, you've already known, but I think it brings up some good points. Expiration dates are a sham. Here's the best way to tell if food has gone bad. And while I am big on preparedness and, and everything, and you guys know that, I'm also a big on, on modern survival living from a standpoint of saving money, which means not wasting money. You know, when we talk about uh, alternative energy with Stephen Harris, he said, well, the first place to start is where? With efficiency. 
no matter what you're what you're doing to create cold, prevent it from leaving your home so your home stays cool. No matter what you're doing to create heat, the same thing, right? So let's start with efficiency. So when it comes to saving money, one of the first places to start is where are we wasting money? And I know a lot of people that will spend, you know, in my opinion anyway, $100 in time to save a dollar, and that doesn't make sense. But simple things like if you don't throw this away, you can still eat it, and you don't have to buy another one before you, you eat one. Uh, that's a really easy way to improve efficiency. So on that note, it's not just about being a prepper and how long will this food last and can I save it until the zombie apocalypse or whatever. Put money back in the family budget. And I believe that the only way that we're going to really save this country and, and improve modern society is to spread the types of things we talk about here. And it's different things that get different people on board with a new way of thinking about life. For some of them it is, hey, look, I know your power went out. Let me plug this thing in and you'll have power in your house. And they go, oh, wow, that's cool. Uh, for other people, it's let me show you how to put together a little bug out kit in case you have to leave your home like these people you see on TV crying that they have nothing right now. And a lot of people are resistant to it, but some go, oh, well, since I'm watching this happen on TV, I know it can happen to me. Show me. And when you show them, they go, well, this is so easy. Why didn't I do it before? And you can go, you can go down the list of things that you've used As, as audience members, when you've told other people about the show, to, to, to hook them. And I think one of the most universal things that gets through to people is saving money and improving their life in general. Not throwing away food and knowing how to disregard a warning label helps. And I think what also helps is if you share this, you don't have to share that you learned it from Jack. You can share that you learned it from Business Insider, which is a recognized publication online who wouldn't lie to you. At least that's what you think. So the person is more likely to take that credibility. So here's a few of them that they have in this article. I have it linked to from the show notes. A bad egg floats. Eggshells are slightly porous as they age. Small sacks of air begin to form between the shell wall and the egg. If the inside of the egg has enough of an air bubble to cause it to float in a bowl, chances are the egg has gone bad. And, and I agree with that to a degree. I think that it really tells you how old the egg is. Sometimes old eggs are still in pretty good shape. In fact, um, we've learned that the best way to, to uh, boil quail eggs is to let them age a while. And basically all eggs are that. And I don't think people think about why. Because they do actually start to shrink and air pockets start to form, it's easier to get under the membrane when you go to peel. And with quail's eggs, it always seems that the fat side of the egg, if you pinch that, that's when it boils. That's where the air gap is. And then you can pop the shell right off of them. So usually about three weeks is when that happens with a quail's egg. Whether they'll float or not at that point, I don't know. But we, we had tons of quail eggs. We actually did use the float test. And we were boiling a bunch at a time. We'd throw them all in a pot of water. And all the ones that floated, we just throw away. So it's a valid thing. Expired yogurt begins to puddle more than usual. When kept in a sealed container, yogurt can last to three weeks. That, that is thanks to live bacterial cultures, which act as a natural preservative. But when those cultures start to die off, things go awry. More liquid than usual will pull on the surface, and sometimes mold will form. Other sides include uh, curdling near the bottom, according to Still Tasty. So they're referencing this and saying the U.S. Department of Agriculture says this or this other website says this to uh, offset any liabilities. Think about that because I'll talk about it in a minute. Uh, uncooked beef gets slimy when it's gone bad. It has a foul odor or slimy texture or sticky or tacky feel. It's best thrown out according to USDA. Changes in color, on the other hand, aren't necessarily an indication raw meat is expired. Uh, expired hummus develops a sour taste. I won't read that. You can get that. It's enough right there. Uh, olive oil stops smelling like olives when it's gone bad. Good olive oil should smell of fragrant and fruity and taste like olives. Uh, according to award-winning chef Marcus Samuelson, uh, oil that's gone bad will often smell like motor oil or glue, according to the Daily Meal. 
Boy, if you got olive oil that smells like motor oil, you got some really rancid olive oil. You know, you know if olive oil is good, you taste it. If it tastes good, it's good. Bad fish starts to give up an abnormally fishy odor. If you have fish with a real strong fish smell, especially a smell that's not just fishy but bad, and I think some people think anything fish smells bad, but years a there is a point where it stops just being from like strong fish to stinky fish. No, good fish does not stink. Fresh vegetables turn yellow when they're going bad. I think vegetables are something really easy to determine by look and feel. Sour milk gets lumpy. Fresh fruit changes texture. Bread grows mold. Uh, deli meat gives off a smell, odor, and changes texture. Yeah, when you open deli meat and it's sticky, that's bad news. Spoiled cheese starts to smell like sour milk and get mold. And if it's hard cheese, you can usually cut the mold off. If it's a soft cheese or shredded cheese or sliced cheese, you should probably throw it away. I agree with, like, this is like 99% spot on. And the reason I think this is important is because I have seen people, friends and family, go, yeah, I have some of that, and they pull it out of their refrigerator, and they look at it and go, oh, this expired yesterday, and throw it straight in the trash. And especially if it was never opened, you're like, do you really think... Do you really think the food inside that container just went, oh, it's Tuesday now, I'm going to kill people if they eat me? That's not how it works. And expiration dates are relatively new in the history of mankind. Uh, people live for thousands and thousands of years with relatively sophisticated societies with both fresh and preserved food. And generally speaking, I know they told you everybody died when they were 12 or some shit like that, which is a lie and a myth we busted in the past that I won't go into today. And there were problems with food poisoning here and there. But in general, people didn't die or even get sick because of expired food. And it's because the human body is most of the time, in most instances, with most foods genuinely capable of determining this is safe to eat or this isn't. It can be done by smell, touch, taste. You're not going to eat a bad egg. You're not. I promise you, when you crack it open, you will not eat it. You will wish you didn't crack it open. You will get rid of it. If you hard boil a bad egg, even when you open that up, you're not going to eat it. You're not going to eat bad food in general. Now, there are certain things we can do, especially, I mean, the, the worst possibilities come from when we start doing things like improper canning and all, where we can get botulism and stuff like that. But in general, the food that you buy from a store is never going to kill you because it got too old. It's either going to suck, and you're not going to eat it, or it's going to be okay. And we need to trust our senses. How do you think animals do it? Seriously. Um, so I have a link to this article in the show notes for you so you can learn more about it uh, if you want to. And, again, I think, it's a, I think it's a really good thing to put into the minds of people uh, out there and a good way to get people introduced to the concept of lifestyle design, saving money, putting money back into your family's budget, and getting the most out of things. So moving on, um, I guess good news really, but the implications are huge. And it's, it's one of the things that's going to drive a lot of the disruption that's coming is a technology known as 5G. And there's an article out today in Inc.com. Uh, the title is, This Technology is About to Change the World, but No One is Talking About It. comes to me from Gary. And I'm not going to read the whole article because it's quite long, but I'm going to go over some areas that it says that this is going to change things. But before I do that, I'm going to explain kind of sort of what 5G is. I know if I start trying to explain it even with my limited understanding based on my understanding of old technologies uh, like 3G and LTE, which are what we're using right now, 
you know, uh, we would get we'd get people bored really quick. So kind of the the progression was 3G to LTE, which was also called 4G, and there were actually a couple different takes on that, and one they called for a while just 4G, and one they called LTE. LTE kind of won out. It became 4G LTE because it's the fourth generation of uh, broadband connectivity is really the best way to look at it. And each of these has been kind of an exponential increase in speed. I mean, that's that's really kind of the, the big deal here is that we can put more information through a wireless network more quickly, and how much more. Um, what's touted about 5G, which is the new emerging technology that's not really deployed yet, especially at the cellular network level, is that it can be up to 20 uh, gigabits, 20 gigabits to an individual. Well, that's all good and well, but it's nowhere near that fast as a user experience. It is uh, generally a user experience expectation of one gigabit. One gigabit connection. Now, very few people have a gigabit connection right now uh, across the Internet to their house or to their place of business. It's even in a, in a world where you know people now have connections that would have cost tens of thousands of dollars only 20 years ago, that's, that is kind of through the, through the sky uh, as for current expectations today. What we're talking about is being able to buy a high definition, uh, you know, high, like 4K resolution uh, movie with almost no latency between the time you say play and it starts playing, with, with no slowdown whatsoever, streamed to a mobile device across a network. We're talking about things like when we think of things that have been a load on cellular networks like, you know, Pandora or iHeartRadio and stuff, and it's gotten a lot better over the years with LTE rollouts, but they still do kind of put some burden on it. It was like, it's not even a thing. It doesn't even matter anymore. The, the amount of pipe, their voice is just like whatever. You know, it doesn't matter what it's audio streaming to you to listen to or you having a phone conversation with somebody somewhere else. It's just, it becomes white noise in the background of the network. So what areas might this impact other than the fact that your phone will be smarter when you're on the internet or faster than when you're on, when you're on the internet? Uh, 3D, 3D technology. This is from the article. One technology that's not broken through is holographic projection. The technology offered in head-mounted displays, while technologies such as Google Glass uh, were a flop, they were introduced prematurely. The business implications for 3D are enormous. In the near future, business meetings will be held in 3D, allowing for more meaningful modeling using CAD drawings and more lifelike presentations. Imagine the use of holographs for purposes of proving an illustration of how a product could work in a sales training. 3D will be a new world. Enhanced video. Companies will have access to higher-resolution video with low latency. While this has implications for everything video games to marketing, perhaps the most immediate impact is recruiting. Companies using videos for recruiting, but it's clumsy fashion, usually only as a supplement for face-to-face -face interviews. Enhanced video will allow companies to expand the reach of whom they recruit and promote a faster process. Opportunities for telecommunications. World War III has broken out in telecommunications, where Qualcomm has developed a modem Uh, that will deliver 5G, but the company is saddled with ongoing antitrust issues with the EU, Apple, and others. To date, the major cell phone carriers have not announced plans to do 5G-enabled phones to be released in the near future. 
According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the U.S. telecommunications industry employs over 760,000 workers, many of whom will take part in rolling out 5G and related technologies. The greatest opportunities will emerge when there is chaos in the market, and this market defines chaos. Healthcare, uh, enabling the Internet of Things for healthcare. I'm going to go a little faster here. Smarter homes and cities. 5G will be the smart to ignite the Internet of Things as home and business device like security, lighting, and audio. Uh, companies in 5G-enabled cities will have an advantage over those not. Uh, AT&T is rolling out 5G in phases, beginning with this year's watered-down version expanding into 140 markets. Connectivity for customers. 5G will provide connectivity to 90% of the world's population by 2027. Companies offering payment systems, healthcare, and business services third world will have access to new markets and customers. You're talking about everybody walking around, you know, uh, with a... Well, going back to my old days, I guess, uh, about two OC-12s in their pocket. I mean, you're talking about connections that ran, ran the biggest data centers in the world just 15 years ago in your pocket. Uh, and autonomous vehicles. I think this is one of the biggest places that people don't understand that this is going to change the world. Not just autonomous vehicles themselves, but enabling them. Here's what it says in the article. Hype about autonomous vehicles has been muted by recent accidents that highlight their unreliability. For roadways to support millions of autonomous vehicles will require more reliable networks. 5G will allow autonomous vehicles to better detect hazards, communicate with other vehicles, interact with smart signage, and follow more precise maps. There is a direct and linear relationship between the installation of 5G and the market adoption of autonomous cars. The commercial applications for autonomous vehicles will be substantial, cutting labor and reducing delivery times in the supply chain. Um, absolutely. The way these autonomous cars are going to work, I think we're, we're thinking about this wrong when we see like why they're not, you know, why they're, we can't get them here faster or what have you. So I think what everybody's thinking is, is your, your car will just drive down the road and know what to do, and it will make those determinations the same way you do. The reason that autonomous vehicles will actually be better than humans is they will have access to information that humans either don't have or cannot process quickly enough to use that much information from that many sources. Your car will be talking to almost every other car in the world, and I think eventually this is why they will push uh, human-driven vehicles out of the market. I, I think it may be, become difficult, if not impossible. Let's say by the year, like I'm talking like 2035. We'll, we'll be well into autonomous vehicles by then, but they might at that point start saying, like, yeah, we don't need humans driving at all anymore. It'll get to be the point where almost every wreck involves a vehicle with a human at the controls. And what will keep us behind the controls for a while will be exactly what we're talking about here. Your vehicle will drive itself 90% of the time in 90% of the places that it goes, and there will be 10% of the places that vehicles go that require humans to do something. And it will be until these types of networks are run out completely and everything's mapped. We have technology right now in GM vehicles that's mapping everything. People in Cadillacs have been looking at this for a couple of years now. And you sit there and you watch and you see like this holographic kind of resolution in a little screen of all the stuff around you. So when you go you know, down under an overpass, you see it three-dimensionally around you. And you look at it and think, well, that has no real function. It looks cool, but it doesn't really help me. Well, it's not for you. It's going back to the GM mothership. They're mapping everything, and they're going to have on-the-fly mapping. And we're hitting the types of speeds now where... Everything can be told what it needs to know almost instantly. And if it's not another car telling all the cars, it's going to be devices telling all the cars, scanners that are set out and telling all the cars. 
Uh, smart signage is a term they use here. There'll be smart roads. They're going to build new roads. Are going to start having sensors built into them. And we're finally at a point where this this type of technology is to a level where this level and speed of communication can happen. I, I think again, a lot of people like we've gotten to what I used to call moon syndrome, like and, and microwave syndrome. Like once mankind invented a microwave and went to the moon, like people stop being amazed anymore by things. And, you know, I, I remember one time hearing a story by some motivational speaker. He talked about how this little girl got on an airplane. And she looked up into the cockpit and all the way down the plane, and she said, oh, my gosh. She was so blown away with it. You know, we get on an airplane, we don't even think about it. It's like a, it's like a flying bus. There's nothing amazing about it anymore to us. And, and we've lost that kind of wow factor that kids get. It's hard to have it anymore. It's hard to be like, wow, this is really a big deal because we're so used to, well, it goes faster, it goes faster. We don't even know what that means anymore. But if you came up in this industry like I did, and you remember that in 1996, it wasn't just that when somebody got on the Internet, they were listening to you've got mail. That wasn't That's the thing that people kind of base it on. But they don't realize that, like, The most advanced offices, their internal networks, were giving users something like, you know, a, a one megabit connection. They were using things called concentrators, and they would have like a 10 megabit card shared across 10 users. And so the, each user would have a megabit if they were all going at the same time. But you know, your, your special guy would get a 10 megabit connection on the internal networks. If you you know you're bringing in things like an OC3, which is an optical connection, uh, as, as your backbone in a, in a very high-end, sophisticated situation. Most people are using T1s and T3s and bonded T1s, but that OC3 would be 155 megabits was the connection speed, 155 megabits, and it was equivalent to 100 T1 connections. And not so long ago, people were paying. $20,000 to $45,000 a month for that connection. And you're going to be walking around in just a few years with a device in your pocket that has the capability of about seven of them. Now do you get it? Now do you, Does that start to crack through um, and explain to you what we're really going to have at our fingertips? what we can then develop because the technologies that will use the full scope of this type of connectivity have not even been invented yet. And it's something to look into from an investment standpoint. I'm sure I've got a question on the way right now for John Pugliano. I'm sure he'll have some smart answers for it too. Um, and picks and shovels answers probably, if you guys know what that means. This, this is the complete earth-shattering thing that changes everything. Because this is going to impact everything. Yeah, there's the seven industries mentioned here. This is going to impact power generation. This is going to impact alternative energy. This is going to let 
those windmills that people, you know, over-exaggerate how useless they are because they're not useless. People don't invest money in things that are useless. I say corporations don't invest billions of dollars in things that are useless. And, yes, they get subsidies and all, but they make invested billions of their own money because they do work and they do produce more energy. The thing you see on, on YouTube is like, or on uh, Facebook, like, a wind machine takes 20 years to put in as much energy as it takes to make it. It's bullshit. She's about six months. But there is issues with when you can produce the energy and where it goes and how you store it. These types of technologies will enable smart energy storage transfer that will maximize the collection capabilities and tell a particular power generation section when to send an extra energy to you for your power wall and not charge you for it. Because right now we just want to fill up your power wall. And it'll keep accounting of the fact that you have an extra whatever there that I can take back at any time I want. I won't let them do it. They're going to do it. You're going to pay for the power wall to go in your house because your life's going to get better because of it. Now, I'm not saying none of this can be abused because this gives Big Brother capabilities that I don't like either. But this is what is. And this is what's coming. And the reality is it is only the crap going on in the telecom world right now that's holding it back. And eventually that... That cork will get pulled, and that bottle's going to flow out everywhere. And my concern was, how can this be? Because knowing a little more than the average bear about this, I know that the problem really isn't how much I can create as a pathway from you to me in the network to your device. That that's not the issue. That's not where the bottleneck is. The bottleneck's not from the node to the user. The bottleneck is from all the nodes back to the mothership, so to say, the back line, the backhaul. So if I'm going to put a whole shitload of people on OC3s as individuals, and this is going to do more than that, then I need a hell of a backpipe for all those people when they get trunked together and they end up on the back end of that network. That's where, that's where the money is in a cellular, a mobile network. It's not in those towers that you can see. It's all the equipment they're connected to somehow. And so I was like, well, where are we at with backhaul? Some of the latest successful testing, three terabyte backbones. Three terabytes. Again, it's one of those things, that, like, it's almost like the national debt, like the number doesn't mean anything to anybody. Um, I use about seven terabytes of bandwidth a month to give 200,000 listeners access to my show. Seven terabytes. You're talking about a backhaul connection with three terabytes a second. Three terabytes a second in two seconds, two and a half seconds. You're talking about the equivalent amount of data that my entire audience of almost 200,000 people use downloading two-hour shows. This is now like, so it used to amaze me when I was doing uh, central office work for a company called MCI that I don't know if they even exist anymore. Uh, and they, they would tell me how many phone calls would fit on a single piece of single-mode fiber. This, this makes that look like that was a Texas Instruments calculator. So this is a technology to learn more about. And for those of you that are young and looking at careers, let me tell you where there is a massive shortage. Experienced telecommunications professionals that can work in these type of emerging environments. And do you know what it pays? 
a lot. I'll just leave it at that. So that's that's the place to look. And you know, they do hire people with engineering degrees, but there are ways to get into that industry without a college degree. Uh, and it is a growth industry for the future and damn near forever. It, it really is. And there's a lot of people that are legacy in it that are holding on, that are also holding it back because they know they can't at this point evolve into this next generation. And as those guys die out and leave, everything in that industry is going to move faster. There's a lot of protection. I, you know, I used to work directly in this industry from an analytical standpoint in my work with Neil Franklin, which is what I did right before I came here with a company called Syrian that actually had learning algorithms that optimized these networks. And I can tell you our biggest impediment was not whether or not we could do what we said we could do, but the fact that we could do it would put so many people out of work. And those people are retiring and continuing to retire, and the young people are coming in and taking over, and this thing is going to take off like nothing you've ever seen from a standpoint uh, of data, data utilization. As I keep saying, there, there's a point in history from about the, the, the end of the antebellum period, which is right before um, the Civil War, and actually leading up, the United States all the way up to the Civil War is the antebellum period. Uh, but in that kind of t time frame, like let's say five to ten years before the Civil War and 1900, you know, about 50 years, that a person from 1850 sitting in 1900 didn't even wouldn't even have understood And the people that lived through it just saw a change. They, they couldn't even get their head around. This is going to make that look like a day at Disneyland. This is, and this is not this thing. I want to be clear as I wrap up this segment. Not 5G by itself. 5G is going to be one of the primary enablers that lets all this other stuff happen. It's the subway of New York City for the world. And, and what I mean by that is when, when New York City was kind of developing It was, it was pretty amazing as a, as a commerce city, but it really wasn't anything like we think of it today, even compared to other cities in the country or the world. And when they wanted to build the city, the subways in the city, a lot of people really didn't understand. And the people that were really behind them said, it will make New York City what it can be. And it did. It's what enabled New York City to become kind of the capital of the world in some ways. And this is that subway system for the world. And the difference is, it will get even better. Like, the subways in New York are not much different than they were 25, 30 years ago. This technology is going to seem like romper room in 30 years. There's no thing about everybody will be on this, you know, 90% of the world will be on it by 2027. By 2027, we're going to be looking at, like, whatever 7G is. Trust me. Anyway, let's take another one. So this next one comes from Travis in Kentucky. He says, I have a question regarding a neighbor's dog killing my chickens. Details. Yesterday I came home from the night shift to find my neighbor's small Jack Russell-sized dog had gotten into my four-foot chain-link fence, killed six of my nine chickens. Part of this is my fault. They did not ensure the coop door was closed at night before, like I like to let my birds forage in the yard during the day. Although a couple of the carcasses were outside the coop in the yard, I have no idea how the dog got inside my fence. We have a similar-sized dog that has never escaped out of the fence. I try to be a good chicken neighbor. We keep the wings clipped so they are always confined inside of our fence, and any chicks that turn out to be roosters go in the soup pot. My first thought when I found out 
found the dog inside the coop was to shoot him, but part of me said that was just being he was just being a dog and following his instinct. So I threw him over the fence and he went back home. I sent a message to the neighbor telling him what happened. They never replied. The laws against me here is we have a city ordinance prohibiting livestock. I live right on the edge of the city limits. I checked both my neighbors before getting the chickens. Both did not have a problem with us getting them. The neighbor who owns the dog is even a city councilman. That just makes it more complicated. And when I asked, he said he thought the law was dumb and go right ahead. How should I proceed? I would prefer not to have to give up chickens, but I don't know how else to prevent this from happening. And short of keeping the chickens inside a coop at all times, which is not ideal... Uh, and about the dog, if he shows up again, should I dispatch him? I'm pretty sure the law would be on my side as a property owner, but I would hate to do that. I am a dog lover, and the truth is the old saying about once a dog gets a taste of blood. Is it tr is there truth to the old saying that about once a dog gets a taste of blood, there is no going back? I'm going to stop right there. No, 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 no. That is stupid, ignorant, redneck talk. I'm going to leave it at that because it doesn't apply here. But you people that are still saying that are perpetuating bullshit. I understand in the 1930s where our grandfathers killed a dog that killed a chicken because they were trying to survive and they could, you know, they were living on the edge of, of sustainability and being able to feed their family and they knew less than now. But that is a flat out effing lie and I'm struggling not to use the word effing so I'm just going to do that and I am not mad at you Travis I am mad at that sentiment and the ignorance of that sentiment to say that a dog once they've done something can't be trained not to do it is literally not figuratively literally one of the dumbest things a person informed about dogs could ever say because everything you train a dog to do it didn't know how to do the way you wanted it before it did it every single thing Yes, a dog that kills an animal can be trained not to. You've seen videos of my dog, Charlie, with livestock. He killed birds when he was young. We brought a dog here named Lucy, who still has some challenges, but she was absolute death to livestock when she got here. She came off the streets. She was feeding herself from what she could kill because no one was feeding her, and we trained her. So anyone that says that is either stupid or willfully ignorant. And in many instances, I think they're just nasty people that like to kill animals. So, this is not about you, Travis. This is about that statement. I'm going to let that go now. I'm not even going to address it going forward because I don't have to. Any thoughts you have would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for helping us all live a better life, Travis. Okay, Travis, now I am talking to you. If you shoot your neighbor's dog, you are an asshole. And if you shoot your neighbor's dog and write me and tell me you shot your neighbor's dog, as a matter of fact, I know who you are and I like you, I will not help you anymore. There is no reason for you to shoot your neighbor's dog. Your neighbor's dog does not pose a serious risk to your family. He's a Jack Russell Terrier. If he was a Rottweiler and your kids were at risk and you shot the dog, I would understand it and see it as a, as a regrettable thing. But there is no need for you to shoot your neighbor's dog. Your problem is of your own making. There is no difference in how dead your chickens are if his Jack Russell climbs over your fence, which is probably how it got over your fence, or a raccoon climbs over your fence, or a coyote climbs over your fence, or a fox climbs over your fence, all of which I guarantee you, you have where you live. Predator protection is your responsibility when you keep livestock. Predator protection is your responsibility when you keep livestock. Period. Okay? Now, if you keep livestock and you take no means for predator protection, predators will kill your livestock. There is no difference in that to the chicken or the consequences to you if it happens to be a Jack Russell Terrier, a Labrador Retriever, or a fox. 
the chicken's just as dead. The protection needs to be in place because predators are a threat. And when you live in the suburbs and surrounded by neighbors, the most likely threat to your birds is actually neighbors' dogs. So, there's the options that you have. One, you live with the risk during the day knowing it's less likely. And you accept that you'll have losses during the day. Because the next time it may not, you know, you could come home and find dead chickens and be sure this little dog did this. And it might have nothing to do with them. I mean, next, the whole thing, not going back, that dog will kill chickens whenever it gets a chance because your neighbor has no reason to train it not to. He doesn't keep chickens, you do. Got it? So it's not about whether or not you can train the dog. It's about, no one's going to train that dog. You need to first check and see if there's any way that dog got under your fence and fix that. That's the easy thing to do. My guess is he went over your fence. Four feet for a Jack Russell that wants to is nothing. They're high-energy dogs. They're lightweight. They can climb a fence. Uh, my dog, I mentioned Lucy, she's about 60 pounds. She stays in my fence because she's trained to. The neighbor that found her, that held her for us until we could take her, uh, they had a five-foot chain-link fence. She went over it every time they put her in it. We brought her here. We started her training immediately. She's never tried to get over the fence. Um, now, so here's your choices. One, you can build a chicken tractor. And you can make that chicken tractor predator-proof. And when you want your chickens out for the day, you can take your chickens out of their holding area and put them in the chicken tractor. That's one thing you can do. This is pretty low cost, but most things in life work this way. You have a certain amount of money and effort you'll put into something, and then you'll have a certain amount of effort and or money you put into it on an ongoing basis. In general, the less we put in at the beginning, the more we have to do as a maintenance. So this will cost very little. You can build a chicken tractor for under $100. Um, but then it means every day moving the birds and moving the tractor. And in your situation, it probably means physically picking up and moving the chickens. You have three now left. Not that big a deal. But if you want to keep you know, six, nine, a dozen birds, you'll get tired of it. But it's one thing you can do. You can create a double-run system and run your chickens in a run-based system. So wherever your chicken coop is, you can create a run on both sides of it. You can run them back and forth, or you can run them in a single run. It's okay. They'll be fine. Less than optimum, sure. But you're in a suburban environment. So you can take the stance of, hey, this is how I'm going to do chickens in the suburbs. Because your only other real option is to put a hot wire around the bottom and the top of that fence which is going to probably cost around a thousand bucks. And you got to ask yourself, is it worth a thousand bucks to you? Now, it prob you know, I say that, I I'm doing the math in my head, it depends on how big your yard is. But what adds up are like all the little insulators and stuff like that, it, it does add up. The wire's cheap, a, ch a good charger that'll keep a dog like that. You're looking at like a 25-mile charger. I think that you're going to spend under a hundred bucks on that. I don't remember what I paid for mine. But you want like a 25-mile box. You want something that puts a pop on them. And if you have a wire up across the top of that and down at the bottom, so if that dog comes underneath, he's going to get zapped, you know, you're going to protect your birds from hit your neighbor's dogs and raccoons and foxes and coyotes. See? You still have a hawk issue, but, you know, that's generally not as big a problem as people make it out to be unless you find one that decides he's going to make a living off of you. But I don't really see another option that you have. Um, as a good neighbor... Your neighbor should train his dog not to get in your yard. Yes, you would be legally right killing his dog. But then you're blaming the dog for the owner's sins. 
and is taking the life of a dog worth a couple chickens. You're not a farmer. You're not making a living on this. It's a dog. He's being what dog. He's do you were absolutely right in what you said. You know, he is doing what dogs do. And dogs do what they do, and they only alter that when they're trained. So unless you want to personally take over the training of your neighbor's Jack Russell, you either set up something that will zap his ass, you know, or you, you can set up a situation where your birds are protected from him. In the end, if you don't want losses to predators, you have to protect yourself from predators. Because this guy could do everything right, Make sure his dog doesn't get on your property ever again, and you can still have losses tomorrow from something else. You have a lack of protection problem, not a Jack Russell problem. Now, if this was a guy with like 20 coonhounds running up and down the road, never in their own yard, never on a leash, never fenced, then you have a neighbor problem. If you're going to live where you have share fence lines with more than one person in a relatively suburban-like environment on the edge of town, then you, you accept that you have to have interactions with your neighbors that include their pets. And i got to tell you, if somebody shot my dog under those circumstances, I'm not even going to say what's going to happen, because it might happen someday, and I don't want to be on record saying it would happen. But you would, you would regret the decision, I would just say that. And I know I'm going to get hate mail from people that say how wrong I am. You think whatever you want. But when you kill a man's dog, there are men that will say, well, it's just a dog. And then there are people who say, you killed a member of my family. And again, it's not like this guy's being reckless with this. He already turned the other, you know, turned, turned his eyes away from the fact that you have chickens. He seems like a reasonable guy. He may not have responded because he doesn't know how to respond. He's not sure what to say. You know, it's probably worth going and talking to him about it. But don't be threatening and don't really put it on him. You didn't protect your birds. And, and dogs getting through and across fences is a thing. You know, if you told me that he didn't have a fence for his dog, you know, and he just let his dog run wild, and you didn't have a fence, I'd say, well, maybe you have some sort of something. That, like, it sounds like that this is just a case of a neighbor's dog getting into another person's yard. And that's part of what happens when we live in the suburbs. So, chicken tractor, run. Or electrify the fence. And again, anybody who wants to protect their animals from predators has to put in some level of predator protection. And the fact that this is a Jack Russell Terrier is irrelevant to that. It's irrelevant to that. You know, we've had predators here that we've taken out because they're predators. They're not somebody's dog. I, I would never shoot a neighbor's dog over something like that. Just absolutely not. Now, I might set up a situation for the dog to be trained. If you can catch the dog in behavioral acts you don't want done. I mean, that cheap solution to this dog could be a dog for collar with a, war a warning buzzer and a zapper. If your neighbor was agreeable to it, you sit out in the backyard and drink a beer. And every time the dog puts his foot on the fence, you zap him. That's just enough to get his attention to where he doesn't want to go near that fence anymore. won't take long. But this is the thing. Your neighbor probably won't like that. And it'll be difficult to do because you're trying to train somebody else's dog. And it won't fix your problem. Your problem's not him. That just had to be the first predator that breached your security that you don't have. 
it's 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 the fault of a lack of security. So I hope that makes sense, and I I hope I don't sound like a dick to you, Travis. I don't mean it that way. And and again, my my blow up at the whole concept of once a dog kills a bird, it can't be trained. It is not that has nothing to do with you at all. Of course, you would ask that question. I don't hold it against you. That's so, it's it's the fact that so many people just repeat it without any thought whatsoever as to what they're saying. It pisses me off. This next one seems complicated, but I am going to give you. The, the short answer, because talking about it for a long time won't change what you have to do to make it part of your life. Jeff asks, Jack, how do you develop the mindset of looking around at your surroundings and figuring out how to make money? I was listening to your interview with Akiva Silver, and you talked about the mindset, how there are people with the vision and people with the work ethic. I have the work ethic part, but not the vision. How do you develop a mindset and the vision to be able to take anything and make money with it John Willis talks about, SOB talks about this also, saying if you drop him in the middle of Central Park, within an hour he probably would have made a hundred bucks. I don't know how to look at things that way. Okay, so Jeff, you actually just took the first step. You asked the question, how do I look around my surroundings and figure out how to make money? The only mistake you've made is you asked me instead of yourself. And I, I know that sounds like one of those things that mystics or whatever say, and I'm not a mystic. But, like, you know, when it's like I saw people ask Seb Holzer about what to plant, and he said talk to the trees. That doesn't really help them. So I'm, I'm not going to leave it that nebulous, but that's really the problem. Now, here's why this works and how this works. The mind is a computer, and your mind and my mind are actually very, very similar. And you can look at IQ or retention and natural ability and something like that, and, and there's differences there. But in the end, the way they function is the same. One person might have like a Pentium 3, and one might have like a Pentium 5, or whatever they make. I don't know. But you got to understand, like, one might have a faster processing capability. Uh, one might have more memory or, or better random access memory, so they can more quickly access memories from the past. But in the end, they all work the same. And that means that the programming to make them do what you want them to do is the same for everybody, assuming there's not a major deficiency. Someone who has a part of their brain dead that allows their, their right foot to move, and it's just not there anymore, and there's no place where synapses can be formed around it to ever make that foot move again, I'm not going to sit there and go, well, if you just ask yourself the right question, your right foot's going to move. So a person that has legitimate brain damage, et cetera, is the exception here. But in general, the average person... Their brain will be will perform exactly as it's intended if the programming that they do is is in the, the direction of the desired outcome they want. When you say, "How do I?" instead of "How to somebody else?" How do you do what you do? If you say to yourself, "How do I find opportunities?" You just stuck programming in your brain. You gave your brain a command: "Computer, solve problem." How do I find ways to make money? Brain goes, ah, oh, I don't know that. I, my Alexa's going off. I don't know how to solve that problem, but I'm going to start running computations to figure it out. And if you say every day, how do I find a way to make money? How do I find a way to make money? You're constantly saying to your brain, look around me, see what I can figure out. How can I do it? And then go try something. Try something low risk. You know, and I'll give you an example of, of low risk becoming high risk, but it still <clears throat> triggered something for a guy. A guy I knew a long time ago named Steve worked for a company called Cablophil. This was back in the days where I worked for Fluke Networks and network testing. And we had several, we, our territories were almost identical, northeastern United States. And 
in three of our territories, we had the same manufacturer's representative. So we got to know each other fairly well. He sold basically racks for cable to go in, and I sold computers to test the cable that goes in the racks. And so we had a lot of times where we'd be at conventions together, meetings together, things like that. And we became fairly good friends. So he relayed this story to me. And he said, so let me tell you about this way to make money that I found. This was way back when not everybody would even think to put money on eBay and how it failed. I'm like, okay. So he said, I, I went down to the swap meet, and they had these stupid little troll dolls. And something was going on, and I don't know if it was like astronauts or whatever, but something it wasn't astronauts, it was something like that. Like There was a group of like five little troll dolls that were whatever this thing that was going on. So he bought them for like a dollar. And he put them on eBay, and they sold for like 45 bucks. So he's like, ah, I made money. So he goes back down to the swap meet and, and looks at the, this, this thing of these troll dolls and goes, I'll take them all. I'll take them all. And uh, so he bought them all, and he said, I put them all on eBay. And then he followed up th that with, so if you ever need any troll dolls, I have a whole bunch of them in my garage. So he took too big of a leap too fast instead of going back and doing more. I mean, personally, what I would have done is I would have taken some pictures of the ones they had more than one of and then put them on eBay and since I had no power seller rating and tested them. And if they would have sold, then he could have gone back more or bought a few and see if those will sell. Don't buy them all. Right? But he, he got the price down by buying them all. He got a great deal on troll. Now, the funny thing is when the Disney Trolls movie came out, if he was still sitting on them and paying attention, he probably could have got a bunch of money for them then. Because right, they would have been vintage troll dolls by then. But see, Steve did something. Steve took a shot at something. And he learned from it. And think about what he really learned. He learned how to find the product, acquire the product for a cheap price, photograph the product, and market it on eBay. And who knows? Today, those stupid troll dolls may have sold a lot better. There's a lot more people who use eBay now. There's a lot more sophistication in how you can use eBay as a seller now. If he would have learned more about how to market them, he might have been able to sell them better. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, So he did something. So all you have to do is, in every situation, look around you and say to yourself, like, what's here that I could sell and how would I sell it? What's here that I could sell and how do I sell it? See, that's another command to the brain. Brain, look around and see what's around you and how can I sell what I sell. Even if you don't want to sell it. I'm sitting here looking at my fish tanks. Like, how can I sell those fish tanks? The best way I can sell that fish tank, since I put so much work into it being so beautiful, is to photograph it the way it is and sell it the way that it is. So now I'm not competing with the retail fish tank you can buy. I'm competing with the environment that I've created, the fish, everything. And I'll help you with how to set it up at your own house. We'll package it. See, now all of a sudden, I could even say I'll deliver it to you and, and put it back. Because obviously I've got to drain it. But, I mean, I could even put the water in buckets so you have that old water with all that great uh, bacterial activity. Well, that could become a whole business setting up fish tanks. A lot of people like a fish tank. They don't know how to set them up. There's lots of people doing that. That's because it's a business. Now, am I going to go in the fish tank business? No. Should you? I don't know. Probably if you love fish tanks, then what's the market like in here? But, see, that's the mindset. That's the mindset. What can I take that's readily available and turn it into something else? And, and there's really no way around it. There's no, like, magic pill you can take. There's no book you can read, and just all of a sudden you're going to start doing that. It's, it, it, it is a mindset, therefore you must set your mind. Okay, It's a mindset, therefore you must set your mind. And, and that brings me to something I wanted to cover today. 
that's just a little aside. So I was on Facebook today, and a gal that listens to the show with her husband named Crystal posted a thing about how you learn things. And somebody actually tagged me because they thought I would get something out of it. Um, and said that she set a goal for herself this year to learn to identify stinging nettles. And that all of a sudden, stinging nettles popped up in her garden. But she thought, I'm going to let those grow so they're bigger when I harvest them uh, to eat them because I'm going to learn how to identify them and how to use them as food because stinging nettles make great food. She then ended up getting burned by the stinging nettles recently and had a pretty bad rash, and she learned that they burned just as bad as everybody said, but yet she knew they were stinging nettles when that happened. And my response to that was, goals make that which is inevitable educational. And here's what I mean by that in her instance. Let's say she had not set the goal of learning what stinging nettles are. Let's say she had not even gone down the pathway of setting goals that had anything to do with this line of thinking and living in her life. Uh, medicinals, food, gardening, herbs, all that stuff. It's kind of lumped together. She had not done that. But she did have a garden. She had a garden. Okay, they would have shown up in her garden. It is not her goals that made the stinging nettles show up in her garden. Gardening in an area where there's lots of stinging nettles out there, you have an inevitability that sooner or later they will be there. So she would have went out, saw some weed that she didn't recognize, and if she happened to yank it out without a glove on, it would have burned her, and she would have learned that weed burns you. But she wouldn't have learned how much it can do for you. So you were going, she was going to come into contact with the plant anyway. But the goal of, it's like, it's like if the, the, the final goal was, I have selected stinging nettles to find out. The first goal was, I want to know more about plants. That goal led to a situation in which it was inevitable that you would learn about the thing that was inevitable that you would come into contact with. And, and coming back to this question, that's what a mindset is. You are going to walk past somebody or something in the next week that is an opportunity. It's, it's inevitable. There is no way around it. It's impossible that it won't happen. It's not just going to happen one time. It's going to happen probably, unless you sit in a box and don't move, it's probably going to happen over a hundred times. There's going to be a hundred opportunities to better your life, to make some extra money, to learn something, etc. There's going to be at least a hundred opportunities. Unless you program the mind and set the goals, those experiences are not educational. They're wasted. Before Crystal set this goal, without being burned, I bet she walked by stinging nettles a hundred times. So people don't just run, randomly run around touching lots of plants. So all of those encounters that were inevitable failed to become educational because the goal wasn't there. So you learn about business, and you set goals to figure out what kind of business you're going And you ask your mind, and you set the mind to seek the mindset. And that's not some kind of guru talk or some shit like that. That's, that is redneck, hippie, duck farmer entrepreneurship. You know, if, 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 I, I look at everything and think, why don't people do something with this now? If you already have something that you're happy with and you're passionate about and it's paying your bills, then I totally understand why you don't. In fact, the biggest problem you have once you do that is, okay, now you flip that switch and you go, holy shit, I can do this, I can do that, I can do this. Now, so they're going, I could go clean, clean people's pools and make 70 to 100 grand a year. 
And I gotta talk, I don't have to talk myself out of not doing it. I gotta talk myself out of not setting up Jack's pool cleaning and having 14 or 15 people doing it at my behest and making, you know, $10,000 a piece off of them. Because it's gonna be a lot more work than I think it is when it's in my head. And I'm gonna be constantly losing people and I hate that and I don't wanna do that. I got this thing that I love so I need to do this. But until you have that, try anything, try everything, but keep it low risk. You're just, and don't worry about whether this thing that you're going to do is going to pay your bills for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter. What will you gain from it? Because a switch, it's, it's a weird switch. It's an incremental switch. It's like a dimmer switch. And let's say zero is where the light is totally off, where the fan is not moving at all. And as we turn the switch up, the fan goes faster or the light gets brighter. And then there's a point where the light is as bright as it can ever become, and the switch is fully thrown. And then the light begins to begat more light. The fan begins to create its own ecosystems of wind. And we think of it as an on-off. Our whole world is in binary thought. I'm not an entrepreneur. Click. I am an entrepreneur. No, we move in degrees in anything that we do, in any goals that we set, in any education that we follow. We move in degrees. One degree, two, three. And boy, there's like 360 to get all the way around the circle, back to where you started, to where you're at your maximum efficiency. So you have to take that first step. So take low risk first steps. Go try something. And if it fails, don't feel that you failed. Feel, well, that doesn't work. I know not to do that. Then sit back and go, why did that fail? How do I make that work? See, every single one of those, when you ask me, and I'm not saying not to ask me, guys. Don't take it that way. But when it comes to like changing your thought process, changing how you live, changing what you do, changing how you derive your income, changing how you act with others, When you ask me, all it is is a first step, but it's always, no matter what my answer is going to be, the real answer is going to come down to you need to start asking yourself. And when you do, you will take the most powerful asset you have, your mind, and you will set it to the work that you want it to do. Because this is what else is inevitable. Your brain will do massive amount of work and computation daily. It's going to happen. I know there's people we make fun of for being idiots and whatever, but even them. Like, it's just misdirection. Like, there are people that are genuinely stupid, but they are the minority. Or we'd all be dead by now. Most people have an amazing capacity for intelligence and, and decision-making. Even with all the advances in artificial intelligence, the human brain is capable of things like understanding like how to jump from here to there and whether I can or not in, in ways that no computer ever could be. Or at least isn't yet. And so your mind is going to be, you're going to be walking down the hallway and you're going to be thinking, without even thinking about your subconscious, about how many steps it's going to be before you go through that doorway. You're going to see somebody set a cup on a counter and realize it's going to fall off if you don't push it back over. Like Your brain is going to do a bazillion calculations a week. You might as well have some of them be for the things that you want. So... Ask yourself, whatever it is, sit down and ask yourself, first of all, what do I want? And then start asking yourself, how do I get? This is some weird version of the law of attraction or something like that. This is actually why the law of attraction seems like it works. It's not like you say, well, I want more money, and then the universe just starts hurling money in your direction. There was every opportunity that you're going to see you would have seen anyway. Or at least the first opportunity in a chain you would have seen anyway. But what would you do with it when you saw it? Ignore it, not even notice it, 
see it but not think it's worth it, see it, think about doing something but not do anything with it, or see it and act upon it. All of those are variables in the program. If the computer has been set to say, find and, and do, then the computer will find and at least it will give you an impetus to do. You'll see it and your first thing will be, how can I do that? Once we get past the how can I do that, should I do that? Because it might be stupid. Don't ever think that it, you know, it might be, if it can get you hurt, if it takes you away from actually paying the bills this month where you know you can, then maybe you shouldn't. You take low risk things at first. But if you turn it on, it'll work. There's just no way around it. And uh, again, I think setting goals makes the inevitable educational. Thanks, Crystal, for that one. Real quick one as we wrap up here. Sarah in Indiana from the blog said the following. My husband used, and this is in regard to some discussions about getting rid of poison ivy, and I said, you know, mechanical renewal is the best you can do and opening things up. And, and people really said, you don't understand, there's poison ivy where we live that has like a two-inch diameter vine. You know, and it's got a root system that's unbelievable. And here's what Sarah's husband's approach was. <clears throat> My husband used an interesting approach to some poison ivy that had climbed our house and had grown inside an enclosed porch. He gave it a vinegar IV. Basically, what he did was this. He took a quart Powerade bottle and filled it with vinegar. He drilled two holes in the lid. Then he cut the poison ivy vine near the ground and stuck and cut each end into the two holes drilled in the lid. He used some low-temperature hot glue to seal the stems into the bottle. It killed everything and hasn't come back. Now, I want to be clear about how this is. I think when people hear IV, they think about how we put an IV into a human being. We hang a bag and we let gravity take you know, whatever it is into their bloodstream. Plants suck up whatever they're in. So you'd have this huge vine, but if it's all coming from a common root system, it's all coming from a common place. And if we take not the ends that go up, Because then you're just going to kill them. Well, they're going to die because you cut them anyway. The ends that come out of the ground and put them into something like vinegar, and they start sucking vinegar up, then we can poison the whole system with the acid that's in the vinegar. I think it'll work. I think it might be the best idea I've ever heard in my life about getting rid of poison ivy. And it's cheap. And if you have a lot of poison ivy, you're not sure it's all one plant. You know, you can get a bunch of cheap Powerade bottles for free by picking them off the road where people throw them out, and you can buy a gallon of vinegar for like a dollar. So I think this is what to try. I think it's great, and Sarah, thank you for sending it in. Now, the story I promised, I'm not real proud of this, and I doubt my dad is at this point either, but it was dealing with a situation that he was dealing with, and uh, an unreasonable person. So my dad ran a service station, did gas uh, station stuff, uh, oil changes. Uh, mostly his business was tires is where he made his money uh, in the 1980s, in the 70s and 80s in Jacksonville, Florida. And... Uh, He had this sign that he's put a lot of money into so people from the highway could see that there was uh, a service station here. And he didn't have like a big billboard or anything. And this was before the days where they put all the little emblems that said there were all these things at this exit. And it was in the middle of the city. So it wasn't like you got a lot of, uh, you know, the people that are driving down the interstate and they come and there's only two exits for a city. And I take any one of them to find out what's there to eat or whatever. It was the kind of thing where like you just flew through there. And the signage was really important. Well, this guy that lived behind where his gas station had this huge tree, and it was only a piece of the tree that was blocking. The tree was really actually probably uh, going to have to get cut back anyway because it was getting into power lines. 
So my dad went to him and said, listen, I'll pay a professional uh, tree, tree surgeon to come out and prune your tree. It'll free up my sign. It'll get them off the power lines. Everybody wins. So the guy told him to go basically eat a penis uh, and use the other word that starts with D. Right? Go eat a dick. So uh, he's like, okay, fine. So he waits for a few months so the guy, I guess, doesn't get wise. He drills some holes in the bottom of the tree, and he starts pouring salt and gasoline in the tree, and the tree died. And then they had to remove the tree. So I, I guess the statute of limitations is up on that. And no one's going to go arrest my dad for a tree that he killed in like 1984. And I'm not saying that you should do this, but I'm just saying the concept works. If we, if we poison something at its root, it tends to die. Now, when Sarah said this, what she said was, or what some people said is, well, how do you do that without killing all the other stuff around you? Well, you wouldn't. You're, 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 her word of a, a vinegar IV is apt. You're, you're feeding vinegar straight into this one plant. And vinegar is a reasonable pesticide. But if you spray poison ivy with it, I don't think you're going to kill it all. If you're just spraying it topically. And it is non-persistent. You can kill grass dead with vinegar, and in a couple weeks it's coming back. It doesn't work like Roundup, and it doesn't give you cancer. So those are good things in this case. So, Sarah, thanks for sharing that with us. That brings us to the end of our show. I want to let you know real quick that I do have the 10-year anniversary sale still going just because of the party happened. Doesn't mean that that's going away. I probably could use some more business since my freaking water heater went out today. Uh, but if you want to become an MSB member, you can for only $35 versus $50. And you can do that by using the discount code 10 years when you sign up. Doesn't matter if you go one zero years or TEN years. Either one of them will work. I did it that way so nobody would forget. Uh, you get all the great benefits of the MSB for only $35 a year, and the price does lock in. Also, the other way you can support us is by uh, doing your online shopping through TSPAS. Dot com. That's T-S-P-A-Z dot com. You go to tspaz.com, you can see all the products that I've reviewed, but as long as you're doing your online shopping through tspaz.com, you help us no matter what you buy. Today's item is absolutely a preparedness item. It is the Victor Tire Plug Repair Kit. Uh, what this does is it lets you do exactly what it sounds like. It lets you repair a tire by using a plug. A plug is basically a really gummy little piece of leather. And this thing's only seven bucks. And it comes with a thing that looks like a scratch-all crossed with a file. And that's basically what it is. It's got a point with some roughness on it. And it's got another thing that looks like a needle, like a stitching needle, which is kind of what it is, but it's for making a single stitch. And what you do is wherever your hole is, you pull out whatever's in it. Say it's a nail. You pull the nail out of the hole. You take the scratch-all-looking file thingy, and you go back and forth in that hole a little bit. You rough the edges up. Then you put one of these plug thingies in the stitching needle-looking thing, You shove it in the hole till it's about halfway in there, and you pull it out quickly. The plug stays behind. The hole is you put air back in the tire. You drive the car away, and you should take a pair of cutters and cut the you know the the long sticky pieces of plug sticking out of the tire off. There's a big myth out there that this is unsafe. It doesn't work. It's not effective. I mentioned today my dad ran a tire business. I was plugging, patching, and breaking down tires uh, and doing mechanical work when I was 10 years old. This stuff works. I'm unfortunately way more experienced with it than I, I really want to have. I have even seen this work on holes you would not think could be plugged. My uncle ran over a screwdriver when I was a kid. We, we found where the leak was. We looked at it, and there was like this black thing, like a big old thumb diameter black thing sticking out. Couldn't figure out what it was. We got a pair of channel locks, and we finally pulled it out. It was like a number two screwdriver. <laughs> 
well, I wonder if this will... We had, already, we had the tire off, because where we were, uh, when the flat went, we didn't have a plug kit. We should have. We didn't have an air compressor. We should have. Uh, but we pulled the tire off, put the spare on, and then we went to the gas station to figure out what was going on with it. We find this thing, we pull it out of there, throw the plug in it, air it up to, to you know safe weight, trim it off, and it doesn't leak. We, he almost didn't believe it. We're like putting soapy water on it over, like, come on, like, it's got a leak. Didn't leak, threw it on his Jeep, drove it until it was time for a new set of tires, which probably ain't the best practice, but it shows you how reliable they are. I have a full review with everything about us available today at tspaz.com, seven bucks per vehicle. I also have a link in there to my preferred air compressor for your vehicle. But here's the truth. With even a cheap $30 air compressor, 99% of the time, if you end up with a flat tire with one of these, you will be able to, in many instances, air it up enough to get the vehicle off the road without even uh, you know, using this thing yet. Find the leak, pull the offending thing out, plug it, air it up, and go on your way without spending 20 minutes or more on an interstate with people flying past you. I have a pretty interesting story about one that happened to me. It was a particular uh, tire injury, right? Tire injury that was not pluggable because it was about a four inch gash from a piece of angle iron. But other than that, this will take care of most of your problems. So even if you don't get one of the higher end air compressors I recommend, this and some sort of air compressor for your vehicle may in fact save your life. When your kids get a driver's license, they should learn how to use this. You know? Go to a tire place and ask for a, a cheap junk tire on a rim that can, can hold air. Go home, put a hole in it with a drill, and show your kid how to use it. Teach them, you know? Uh, and if you use, like, lawn trackers and stuff where there's thorns like I do, these are mandatory. Absolutely mandatory. So the Victor V22 heavy-duty tubeless tire repair kit, if it ain't in your vehicle, you're wrong. I don't say that often, but in this case, because of how much it can save your ass, you're wrong. I'll say it. With that, let's go to our song of the day. Song of the day is by the Doobie Brothers. I love the Doobie Brothers. I listened to the Doobie Brothers as a kid, you know, with music they released before I was born. I just always loved them. This is a newer song, though. It's uh, It was released in 2010. And the Doobie Brothers are still making good music, man. This is from the album called World Gone Crazy, and the song's called A Brighter Day. This song almost has like kind of a Bob Marley feel to it, almost a reggae feel. It's almost like... Classic rock meets reggae meets a little bit of a Jimmy Buffett feel. Like, you know, Jimmy Buffett's kind of sort of like reggae island-like, but it's its own thing. It's kind of more in that vein than actual reggae, but it makes you feel reggae if you don't know Jimmy. That type of thing. Um, this is, the song, though, is actually kind of, um, well, it's written by Tom Johnson, who is the guy that gave us the sheriff with a samurai sword in the uh, Doobie Brothers song, China Groove. Describing this song, he told us, A Brighter Day is about a young guy who has a gift of being able to tell the future to see things returning called second sight, which I believe is an old southern Louisiana term. It's an old blues term is what it is. Then all the newsies go down and ask him what he sees, and he proceeds to tell them that mankind is screwing up by going to war all the time. They need to talk more. It's kind of like a new version of listen to the music. It's how the positive would trump the negative if people got together, talked and used music and things like that as a base. That's what listening to the music was all about. 
using music as our way of communicating because it's an international language. You don't have to worry about the world words. Music itself brings you up. It's just a lifting experience. This song is a lifting experience, and I think that many times people reject the concept that if we would all just talk about our problems versus you know going to war over them, we could solve most of the world's problems. Because it sounds too easy. But I think the bigger problem is, for most people, is as soon as you start talking like that, you then start have to start taking some level of responsibility. And responsibility is something we can use a lot more of. If music gets us there, so be it. I like this song. I think it was a really great selection by John Adam. I think it fits today really well. And as you're listening to it, think back to what I had to say about things like sanctions today. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. <laughs>